Welcome back to the Sports Booth Podcast. You are joined by myself and Husey once again. Hello, Husey. How are you? I am very well, thanks. Uh, I had mixed results over the weekend, but one very good result um, for me, and I guess one bad result for you. Well, you had a couple bad results, but one really bad result for you, which has made me feel really good about myself. (laughs) I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, so obviously a big week of sport and and I, I feel like we'll get straight yeah. into the, the headlines of the sporting week. Obviously the biggest one being that the EPL has kicked off uh, because there wasn't much rugby on over the weekend, was there? Uh, not that I can remember. There I don't remember there any. There, there was a couple any, games. There was no rugby at all. There were two, the, the M- two games at least. The NPC kicked off. Sunday morning. What, is that what you're thinking of? NPC... National Provincial Ooh, Competition. I was thinking of something New Zealand related, but not the NPC, if I'm honest. I, yeah, I right, the All Blacks really fucking lost again. Off. All right, yeah, let's get into yeah. it. They lost again. They went to South Africa. They lost. Argentina lost to the uh, Wallabies. So Hughes is happy. I'm sitting here like a sad sack because fucking what a waste of time that was getting up at one o'clock to watch that New Zealand shit. bottom of the table of the rugby championship and Australia at the top. Things he didn't think he would see in 2022 for 400, uh, Alex. That's a, that's, a, that's a Jeopardy joke for all you uh, game enthusiasts out there. Uh, I mean, I guess we should really start off with that, shouldn't we? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you want, do you want to talk about the All Blacks game, or do you want me to talk about it? Like, I, I could go soft if you want. I. You, how about you start? Because I feel like I'm not, I'm not ready for soft. I've got a lot of, a lot of venom behind okay. me. But so you start us off. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, I've seen the, the, the highlights of, of the game, so I didn't see the, the full thing. Um, I mean, like you said, waste of time watching the whole thing. But what I did get out of the highlights and from reading the post-match reports was there was uh, a lot of errors on the All Black side, and that really cost them. Now, one thing that immediately leapt out to me was that uh, the All Blacks didn't score a try until near the end of the game when they had a one-man advantage from a red, cl- a red card. Uh, after Bowden Barrett was taken out in midair. And what I will say, it was a really awful collision. Like, I don't think there was any malice uh, behind it from the um, South African player. And he himself was knocked out. That Both players were taken off the field. But um, I, th- I think it's similar to the Tom Banks sort of scenario uh, in the Super Rugby where he knocked himself out in that tackle. It was just a poor decision. Um, but much like reckless driving, if you make a poor decision, you get punished for it because you can't hurt someone else by being reckless. And that's what he did. Um, and I wish all the best to, to Bowden Barrett, but he crumpled like an accordion, basically. And it was – I'm trying to make light of it there because it was very disturbing seeing him land that way. But, um, as I said, the, the All Blacks didn't score until quite late in the game, which speaks both to the Springbok defence um, and their line speed was one of the highlights of the game, I think, from the Springboks. But also the other big thing was the errors from the All Blacks. Uncharacteristically sloppy, I think, uh, has been thrown around a fair bit. But equally, a lot of punters are saying now characteristically sloppy of the All Blacks under Ian Foster. <laughs> uh, and the cries of hashtag Ian Foster out, I think, have never been louder. So that's what I took out of out of the game um, from an All Blacks perspective. From a Springbok perspective, uh, they look sharp. They look crisp. Uh, their backs look so dangerous. Look so, so dangerous. Um, and they, they, they took a field goal in the 57th minute or something like that which just shows you that where they're at in terms of their philosophy, which is just points on the board anywhere we can. And it's sort of a Northern Hemisphere philosophy, just drown you under the weight of position and points. And, uh, yeah, uh, 
I'll hand it over to you now for a New Zealanders perspective. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was the most South African performance I've seen in a while where uh, defence was just unrelenting. Like, their line speed, uh, you, you sat there and you had to question if they were offside. Like, it was one of those ones where, obviously, you've got the touches and stuff there, so I'm not saying they were offside. I'm just saying you're watching it and you're like, they're obviously timing this so well. They had it down. Um, it was like they kind of read our playbook. I feel like that's the feeling you got. Again, not. I'm not saying that they cheated at all. It's just that was how good their D was. Was it was, it was daunting. Like it was just always, always on. So I mean, yeah, South Africa. I think actually played really well defensively. Attack. Uh, there was nothing too impressive by their attack. I mean, they scored two tries. One was off a bomb that wasn't taken. Um, like you'd call it a, a lucky try in rugby league type thing like that. Uh, and then their second one was just a mistake. But they did what, you know, like you said, the Northern Hemisphere teams do and South Africa do. They pile on points. They get in the right area. They score from that. So they were, they were quite clearly the better team. Um, but as much as their attack didn't worry me as much as it has um, in the past, I think, obviously not having Cheslin Kobe there was probably a little bit of a positive. But, yeah, they, they scored an, a, a nice try. The, the arm offload was a really good offload. Uh, but, yeah, again, it's just it's a bomb wasn't taken. It wasn't like it was a well-worked try, I would say. But, yeah, uh, that's that's the way it felt for me looking at it from a South African's perspective. New Zealand was 100%... What you've just said, the the errors were ridiculous. Like it was, it was getting comical towards the end. Like it wasn't a true all black performance. Uh, that plus the way we were at the breakdown versus, uh, especially marks. It was just anytime you took it into contact, we couldn't build more than ten phases. I think we were ten phases once in the game, and it was just you could just tell they would. They were so good over the ball again, South Africa, and it was a, a credit to them what they did there. Um, but yeah, I, I think. I'm actually going to come up from a, a bit of a, a more open performance where we were right in this game with all. If, if you if we can discount the errors, then this is a different game. Take away if, if we weren't making so many errors, I think this is a different game. I, I don't mind the the turnover, the balls and stuff like that. Uh, I know Ian Foster said after the game that this was their most improved performance, and I actually agree with him. When I looked at all of the games. The, the Irish test versus this test, that was our best performance minus the mistakes. If you go the general play, everything like that, we looked a lot sharper with the ball in hand with everything like that. There was just, and, and Sam Kane said, said best, there were key moments that were, were poorly lost. I mean, uh, uh, they, they got a scrum pretty much off kickoff when Faf de Klerk knocked himself out and straight away gave a free kick and it was like that kind of set the tone for the game where it was like always on the back foot just things weren't going right and and yeah that's it led to a 26 point to 10 drumming in the end uh it's tough to say where do you go next from here I guess as a New Zealand fan as well because it was their improved performance the errors they have to get rid of those that was it was just that that will kill any team and it was just not all black like um but I mean the, the thing is we created enough chances there to probably win the game as well which is is, is funny saying like we had just about I, I thought it was going to be probably one of the special tries of of the year if not the damn century yeah. when Bowden Barrett made a half break from his own goal line and if Akira only I don't mind again trying to execute that pass but 
that's a pass we have to execute if you want to win games like this. If he executes that pass back and field, we probably end up scoring one of the, the greatest tries ever. There was another time Will Jordan broke, and if he doesn't get ankle tapped, you never know when Will Jordan's yeah. in space. So I kind of go, looking at that performance, still not where we'd like to be, but I, I actually think it was an improvement, and I've, I've got hope for the next test. Um, I think... What Richie Mwanga did when he came on gave me a little bit of hope. I know Bowden Barrett obviously get, get leaving the field. I don't think they'll play him just with his past history and, and leading on to a World Cup next year. You you wouldn't be risking anything kid-wise um, there. So I, I, I'm interested. I'm interested. I'm, I'm, my interest is peaked in, in Ian Foster and what he can do because this is the great challenge, you know. He's got a team that mm. with everyone there is, is underperforming but have – have the capabilities to beat beat these teams. Now, I still think our, our game plan's so wrong. That the amount of bombs that South Africa put up that were contestable versus us was ridiculous. Like that's that's where I feel like half the game was lost. But yeah, other than that, like as I said I'd take a one one. We've got all the work to do now. If we can get one win on the other side, um, I'd be a happy camper. But that is that is my view from a from a New Zealander speaking about it. What you but you said you were you weren't gonna be soft about it, but I think that was pretty pretty tempered. Um, yeah, look, it's I understand, you know, like it, it, I think it speaks more to how um, good the Springbok are at the moment uh, with just how they how they played. So yeah, I, I I don't I don't I don't disagree with anything you said there. Um, and and the the. I first classified mistakes as uncharacteristic, and they really are. Like that pass from Yuani, most times in all black history, that goes off. That that gets caught and isn't forward, and everything's gravy. Um, but speaking of teams battling adversity, let's move on to the Wallabies versus Argentina. Now, the Wallabies have had a couple of weeks from, from hell, basically. You know, uh, <laughs> injuries in training, uh, injuries in the previous series, um, the captain, Michael Hooper, pulling out for mental health reasons. And I read a, I believe you're going to talk about this more later, but I read a really good article where it talks about, um, talks about Hooper and his history. You know, he's, um, the, he's the most capped captain ever of the Wallabies. He's getting close to being the most capped player ever for the Wallabies. He has been playing at such a high level for so long and the toll that that takes on his body uh, and then his mind as well. Uh and then also the the weight of future expectations on him for the World Cup next year, but then also in 2027, which I think he was a bit startled that people were still having him in the mix for that. Um, then also, you know, during the game, you lose Quade Cooper again. It's time to uh, a ruptured Achilles, it turns out. So he's not going to be back for a while. Uh, Samu Karevi out for the rest of the season, right? Angus Bell didn't play uh, in this game either. So you've got in injuries all over the park. Uh, and people stepping in at the last minute. But I think this was an excellent performance from the Wallabies considering all of those things, right? Now, the final scoreline looks lopsided, 41 to, to 26, but it was a lot closer of a contest than that. Uh, and Los Pumas were leading for a lot of the game as well. So it was a bit of a come-from-behind uh, victory for the Wallabies. And then what I loved to see was them fighting even past the 80-minute mark to get that all-important bonus point to not just be satisfied there with a win, and I really like what I heard from James Slipper where what he said post-game was before the game, he challenged the Wallabies to put in a performance that not only the country would be proud of, but more importantly, that Hooper would be proud of. And I think that speaks to the respect he has in that locker room. 
one thing that I, I messaged you this as well after the story broke, and I was reading Facebook comments. Now, as everyone knows, Facebook Dangerous comments game. can be quite toxic <laughs> and quite backwards. But I did not see, I saw, I think, one negative comment amongst hundreds and thousands, right? The respect that Hooper has across the spectrum from everyone, it seems, was great to see. And it was fantastic to see so many people uh, getting up and supporting uh, mental health in that way and respecting his decision. Uh, so I, th I think from the adversity, the Wallabies came out uh, strongly. Um, Hunter Paisami had a hell of a game, hell of a game. Um, I wasn't satisfied, quite frankly, with what I saw from him from the from the England series, but he really stepped it up uh, at the inside centre position. I think that's probably his more natural position. But when you've got the best 12 in the world, Sami Karevi, ahead of you, you're not going to get many reps in that jersey. But with Karevi out now, Paisami's got a chance to show what he's made of there. Jordi Pattaya had a good game as well. Fraser McWright coming in late. I mean, all round, great performance. Falau, Fayan uh, as well. I was listening to the commentators. They said he had one of his best games um, that he's had in Wallabies colours. So, look, the Argentinians put up uh, a great fight. Uh, we knew Buffelli was going to be dangerous, and he was. Pablo Matera as well. Both players in our uh, Sanzar uh, <laughs> representative squad. And, yeah, look, I think it's a positive start for the Wallabies. Um, and, and, yeah, it, it gives me hope for the, for the rest of the rugby championship. Uh, you know, of course... The Springbok and all like a different beast from Los Pumas, but I mean Argentina is getting better and better every year. So, hundred um, percent. Not, I don't want to discount them at all, but it, and I think yeah, it definitely uh, is positive signs for the world. Yeah, and I mean again, like you said, don't discount them because now with Chica behind them, you know they're they're always going to be competitive, and, and you saw it in that game. I mean, mm. it was thirty four twenty six, obviously before. Final try, um, and oh, it was at nineteen ten at halftime or something like that. So they were they were always yeah. in the game, and I think you know going to Argentina is never easy. And if you can come away with potentially ten points that, or even nine points, you'd be a pretty happy camper because I think they may upset one of South Africa or New Zealand. Like it wouldn't put put it past them at the moment with what they're doing. So. Uh, I mean, a great start, like you said. I think a fantastic start. I think uh, it's it was a big game and a must must needed win, especially with what everything that's going on with Aussie rugby. How you know, like not bad, but like how unfortunate I'd like to say it has been over the yeah. past you know um, fortnight. I'd probably say, uh, and I think yeah, people stood up in the right place. Reese Hodge, you know, not not a well known ten, stepped up, played well at ten. Nope. Um, the ultimate um, backup for any position. So I think yeah, there was. I think Dave Rennie yeah will be thoroughly happy with that performance um, and to come away with five points. I think that's that's the big one. Uh, I think yeah, Hunter Pasami, as long as he doesn't kick too much at twelve, he's showing he can do twelve or thirteen. So. It's, it's yeah. a lot of good signs, I think, for Aussie rugby, which is it's, it's good news. Um, more rugby. There was, there was in fact, more rugby uh, on the weekend. The MPC in New Zealand kicked off. Now, Jesus Christ, the difference in level is 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 absolutely fascinating. I watched obviously Sunday morning the All Black South Africa game, and then Sunday afternoon my Wellington Lions were playing the Bay of Plenty Steamers. Now, I honestly for. It was one of the best games I've watched in a very long time of rugby. Like, the quality of the product of the MPC is absolutely fantastic. Like, fantastic. We had TJ Perinara there playing against, I think it was, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Tito Ringaringi, uh, the Triple T, the uh, 
former All Black halfback for Bay of Plenty. I definitely butchered his name, but Triple T, I'll call him that for now. Uh, yeah. So that's two former All Blacks playing off against each other. And it was a just a, such a fascinating game with... So I mean, the game ended 37-35, to, to give you a bit of backstory. So I just sat there and was like, wow, this is an incredible game. And I'm sure the 500 people in the stands agreed with me because fucking hell, it was empty at Westpac Stadium. Now, I am a massive fan of the MPC. I think it represents a lot of tribalism in New Zealand rugby that we don't have, but it's dying. Now, how... Do we save this? Now, there's one easy answer to this, and that's smaller stadiums. Now, I just think you can get smaller stadiums. You fill five to 10,000 seaters of people who are willing yep. to go there and shout their, you know, their throats out for the game, just absolutely give it their all. It's a much better product. It's a much better watch. You see it in the A-League sometimes when you get, you know, 10,000 fans in a, in a Western Sydney Wanderers game, 15,000 fans with the, the flags waving, just the atmosphere is so much better the product deserves that and I think that's what needs to be done there it it was yeah just the games I've watched and the highlights I've watched of the NPC I'm like this is incredible rugby and I mean actually funny enough um, Joey Walton who is a New South Wales Waratah outside back or centre I believe was playing for Bay of Plenty so I'm sitting there and I'm like man you know what would be interesting now and I, I, I don't know how it would work but an NPC where Australian players could play in it as well. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know how you do it with teams and stuff, but I know the Shoot Shield is coming into finals now. And if there was a way we could do this with even, you know, four or five and get the Australian Super Rugby teams into the NPC as well, I don't know how the travel works and stuff. Don't don't go into me with the numbers. It just, it, it was like Joey Walton's obviously given up the chance to play Shoot Shield finals to go and play the NPC for Bay of Plenty. And I was like, that's... I. That's a per- he goes into a professional setting rather than playing a few more games again for Gordon. I just thought that wasn't a bad shout. I was like, that's very interesting. And it just, it interests me because NPC is dying in New Zealand. Like I just sat there and I was like, man, this crowd absolutely is horrendous for one of the better games of rugby I've seen. When you compare it to something like I'd just seen earlier with the Springboks and, and the All Blacks and the crowd just buzzing, it was like, this product deserves more. I don't know how you get it there, but I think smaller stadiums is the way. Smaller and more affordable. I think more people are willing to come out if it's uh, more affordable. Um, and that's one of the things about big stadiums is that they, they cost a bunch. And it's not just the ticket prices. It's the uh, concessions and stuff in there. Uh, I mean, you know, we went to, uh, you know, you went to Australia versus England at the SCG. We both went to Waratahs versus uh, Fiji uh, Dura at the start of the year. And the concession prices were insane. So, yeah, that's, that's I think, one thing is to, to consider. I know... These big stadiums, they cost a lot, and they have to they have to pay it off somehow. But I, I think you need to recognise that rugby is not uh, going to do it because you'll drive people away, and so you'll get diminishing returns um, on your product there. So yeah, I, I don't think we've ever been in a disagreement about the size of stadiums and uh, rugby where it's at. Yeah, nice. Uh, another big headline in sport is obviously Israel Alasanya is headlining the UFC 281 at the Madison Square Garden, predicted to be one of the biggest cards um, of especially, well, this year, if not in the next few years, five years, um, fighting, I think it's Pereira, the Brazilian, who is actually um, beating him twice at kickboxing. So it's going to be a fa- fascinating contest. Uh, but, I mean, that is a massive card to... 
I, it just it, it blows my mind how much of a superstar you you truly are in such a small country like Adesanya to be headlining an event at the MCG like that you just don't see that every day and I think he was he was very highly critical of New Zealand during COVID lockdowns because you know the All Blacks were free to come and go but him and his team weren't free to come and go um, and and I mean you know. Questionably, you could probably say he's right. He's not wrong because of what he's actually doing for New Zealand and putting on the map. I just think it's a, a fantastic, I guess, uh, moment for New Zealand sport and especially New Zealand fighting sport. I think this is this rivals just about anything we've ever had in the game. I look at it now. I'm like, you know, we had obviously David Tua. We had Joe Parker was a was a heavyweight champ, but I just go, he is quite clearly our best ever combat sport athlete and now headlining this. If he gets a win here, uh, I think that will cement his his place in history. On to the next headline, which is the EPL. <laughs> it has kicked off, although I try to make a joke and move over to this one pretty quickly. Uh, it kicked off, which was fascinating, I think. Uh, again, it's... <laughs> I just it's just different sport. It's a different complete world that like a Premier League and just watching those games, watching the highlights, watching the fans, uh, it blows my mind. I go, how can we get to that with rugby? Like I just sit here and go, man, there must be a way. There must be a way. I've watched. I've just uh, started watching the uh, All or Nothing, the Arsenal um, version of it on Amazon Prime, the documentary, and there's a docu series on Tottenham and Man City as well. And it just, just the the absolute fanfare, the the amount of money, the the people, the culture, it blows my mind away. There's nothing like it. No, it's it's a it's a whole other level. And uh, yeah, the way for it to happen for rugby is what they've done with the EPL and football in general, which is uh, make it make it a religion, right? You, uh, you know, it's your your team is your team from birth, basically. Um, or from very early on in life. Uh, it's similar with American football. It is that is your team, live by them, die by them. The difference is football is international, American football, hence the name, American football, is not. <laughs> uh, I know the NFL is looking to expand internationally, uh, and I know I'm sort of detracting from the EPL here, but the uh, lowest price ticket to the NFL game in Munich, I think is something like $500. And the highest price ticket is about $35,000. So <laughs> I don't think they're going to be making too many fans that way. But it's such a rare event, I don't doubt that they'll fill out that stadium. Um, I think a lot of people would pay $500 to go see it, which is absolutely insane. Uh, but yeah, it, it needs to be taken to a near religious level. And I think, I don't know, Australians, I don't think, I think we don't take ourselves that seriously that we would ever worship it like that. Like I know there are... NRL club fanatics out there, but I don't think we are a country that gets that up about it. Like you look at like NFL games and EPL games and stuff like that. People there with like painted faces and costumes and outfits and stuff like that. That that doesn't happen at the NRL level. It just doesn't. Like it's just I don't. I just I I, I just don't think we're that crazy. <laughs> I think we're not crazy like football yeah. fans and American football fans. And I think because of the Aussie sort of. Uh, attitude about taking the piss out of everything and not taking anything too seriously we're just sort of we're pretty chill i think and yep. that's just what it comes down to and i don't think we'll we can reach that level with with sports i'm i am interested because like you said and and 
this is probably a good point for rugby is the amount of teams there are in rugby. And I'm not saying like Super 12, but I mean, like I support the Wellington Lions, but then I've also got my club team back at home, you know. So like, let's take it as a New South Welshman, like you support your Shoot Shield team. Then let's say that, that Shoot Shield or whatever, the NRC that's there, you know, then you've got to support inner city, Sydney, whatever it was, Sydney City. Then you've got the Waratahs. Yep. Then you've got the Wallabies. So, you know, you've got at least three teams, and in my case, four, when I go my home team, my NPC team, my Super Rugby team. And that's why the, the big argument in New Zealand at the moment is that Super Rugby killed NPC and has continued to. But I see why they went in that direction. But it is, like you said, like... You grow up, you get born into an Arsenal loving family or a Manchester United family. That's it. Like you've got Manchester United, then you may play for a social team, but those clubs aren't. But like you know, you're not pushing to make those yeah. clubs or anything like that. And then you have your nation, so you have two teams, and that's it. And that's what I mean. It would be still to me. It looks. I look at the club scene and I go, that's where it could be at. That is where it could be at. I mean, you you can see sometimes you get with Rats versus Manly. You know, you get a ten thousand person crowd at, at, at the Shoot Shield. As a, yeah, it's right to Manly, yeah. So that 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 to me, I go, that could be it. And you have club scenes here. I just go, I feel like we've probably, you know, created too many teams and then given everyone too many options now to support. Like, how do you choose yeah. that? And it's, 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 it is an interesting point, like you bring up there, the religion side of it. Uh, and Aussie making the headlines, though. Danny Rick, I don't know if you're around this situation, but, well, it was big yeah. news. Um, and it's, 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 Two Aussies really making the headlines, if you say it, with Piastri more than likely taking the spot. For those who don't know, I'll give you the rundown, and then I'll get Hughes' opinion on it. Uh, Alpine, one of the team, a French team in the Formula 1, uh, currently has Piastri as their uh, backup student driver. Uh, he was then announced by them that he would be driving for them in 2023, where he then released a statement and said, that's not entirely correct. What is believed to have happened is McLaren has said they're going to offer him the seat, talk to Weber, uh, Mark Weber, who is the, his his agent, uh, Formula Formula 1 driver, and the fact is it's going to be Danny Rick's seat that he's going to be offered, who Danny Rick was actually on contract until 2023, uh, so was expecting mm. the seat. So now Pastry apparently driving there, Danny Rick up in the air, no one wants him to retire because he's probably the best character in Formula 1. Does he go back to Alpine, who used to be Renault, who he used to drive for? It's all a bit of a messy situation from an Australian's mouth. What, what do you make of it? Well, I think everything I've seen almost universally has said that it's sort of more the car's fault than Daniel Ricciardo's fault that he, and things within the team that he hasn't uh, been posting his usual results this year. I don't know too much about Formula One, but I do know I have a lot of European friends who are Formula One fans and there's universal respect for Daniel Ricciardo. So, yeah, I mean... Hopefully he gets on a, a team that puts him in a better vehicle. Uh, and, you know, because it's always good to see Australians doing well in whatever sport they choose. Like the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> 100%. And, I mean, this, the situation is, I mean, he's delivered McLaren. It's only win in the past, what was it, like eight years or something like that. So I, I, he's still got t- immense talents. And you can see when he gets it right, it can be very good. Uh, Husey, I believe you have some more hyperbolic headlines for us, my friend. Yes. Well, look. Much like you might have noticed that the show, we've we've sort of changed the format um, a little bit this week um, because look, we both played sports. You still currently play. We like <laughs> to challenge ourselves, right? We like to 
to change things up and to always be striving for, for better. So that's what I've done this week. So first week we did these headlines, I just rattled off three headlines. Last week I did it for the entire round of the NRL. This week I've changed it again. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm constantly improving, bringing a better, better product to the table. This week I'm bringing three hyperbolic headlines, but I'm also delivering the news along with it. So... Without further ado, this is the NRL News. This is Husey's Hyperbolic Headlines, and I'm your host, Husey. First up, Electric Eels extinguished the Eagles' earnest end-of-year endeavours. The Parramatta Eels all but ended the final hopes of the Manly Sea Eagles in an electrifying 36-20 win at Four Pines Park, coming off the back of big efforts from Mike Acebo and Clint Gutherson. Speaking of coming off the back, Manly, of course, were last week involved in the Pride Jersey saga, and the players who sat out the game for quote-unquote religious reasons we're hoping to show just how important they were to the team. Reports from inside the Manly Shed speak of fractures amongst the playing group, with one player who wore the Pride jersey reportedly telling the conscientious objectors, we are just as shit with you as without you. Next up, Righteous Raider Rant. Ricky's raid-fueled rhetoric likely to result in remarkable retribution. Famously flame-tongued coach Ricky Stewart has once again found himself in hot water with the league this week after another explosive post-game press conference. Speaking about Jamin Salmon, who... Uh, embodying his last name and flailing on the ground like a caught fish, booted Tom Starling in the face in an act of carelessness. Much like the carelessness he displayed as a 12-year-old when he allegedly made hurtful comments about a relative of Stuart. Ricky, deciding that reacting to childish behaviour with childish behaviour is the appropriate response for a 55-year-old professional football coach, called the player 32 years his junior a weak-gutted dog person and has been one since he was a kid. The league is reportedly seeking to ban Stewart for at least one game in the remainder of the season, while Salmon's family is considering legal action. One might be tempted to ask if Ricky's reign as Canberra coach might also be on the line, as the Raiders fight for the last spot in the finals, and uh, it, as the Raiders are fighting for the last spot in the finals, and any setback at this time of year could be costly. And lastly, flashing fox and hypersonic hammer speeds to stun spectators with steamy sprint. Fans in Bundaberg were treated to a rare sight on Sunday as a fox and a hammerhead shark went at it in a race to prove who is the fastest man on the planet. In the spirited contest between the late season bloomers of the Bulldogs and the surprising darlings of the 22 season, the North Queensland Cowboys, the NRL witnessed a showdown of supersonic proportions between double-barreled surname brothers Josh Adokar and Hamaso Tabuai Fido. Chasing a kick, ultimately it was the hammer who won the race, leading punters to ask, is the fox really the fastest man on the planet? or is Phil Gould talking out of his ass as per usual. Adokar has been in tremendous form in the back half of the season, along with 5'8 Matt Burton, and has definitely put his hand up for return to the Blue Squad next year. That's the headlines for this week. I've been Husey, and as always, remember, it's not hyperbole, it's the news. <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. I thought, you know, the headlines are there, but what our viewers... What our listeners really want is some context behind that those headlines. <laughs> and uh, yeah, look, three massive stories this week, and I think they just deserved a little bit more airtime than just a headline. <laughs> All righty. Well, uh, on to the next segment, which is Luke's top five. Yes. So uh, I'm going to do these every week, top five things, and today it is the top five things that are killing rugby union. Now, you could call me a... a a purist. I wake up at one o'clock in the morning to watch the All Blacks lose to South Africa. Didn't go back to bed until three thirty. So uh, I feel I like I have. In that case, <laughs> uh, I feel like I 
have the right to, to speak on this subject. Uh, a long-time player, 25th year in the game, I believe it is, 24th year in the game um, of playing. So I've got my top five things, killing rugby. The first one are box kicks. Now, it's not specifically box kicks, but it's a situation where a halfback can ruck the ball back all the way to the hindmost feet to get a box kick away. Now, our game, as we uh, mentioned the other day, is only in play for 30 minutes. And when you take 10 seconds off to get the ball to the back of the ruck to then just put up a box kick that gets knocked on, leads to a scrum, and waste one of that full 30 minutes, I'm pretty disappointed. Now, again, teams use and, and play to the rules as much as they can. I can't judge anyone because every single team does this it just sucks to watch uh, and I think it needs to be taken out of the game I don't think a, a halfback should be able to do that uh, and one of the more useless calls in rugby which is use it to a halfback which he then proceeds to take an extra 5 to 10 seconds to use it so box kicks killing the game second thing and we've discussed this on the podcast before advantages uh, I'm a massive fan of 6 phase to 8 phase uh, penalty advantage and then two to three for um, knock-on or other infringement advantage. Keep the game going. Teams know exactly how long they've got. Um, and then we don't have this. It's up to the referee to decide, and each game has a different advantage and this and that. Uh, my specifics is to try and keep it as short as possible to keep the ball and play longer. So six uh, phases for a penalty. If you use six phases, the advantage is over. doesn't matter if you made metres if you didn't. If you make... Also, 20-plus metres, advantage is over. And then for knock-ons or over anything else like that, it's two phases or 10 metres uh, is advantage over. Three, inconsistent rules, and specifically around deliberate knockdowns. Now, this is a, a height of one because Bowden Barrett deliberately knocked the ball down well. It was actually called correctly and was just called a knock-on because you could tell he was going mm. for an intercept. You put these two plays together, and I probably will, with him and Izzy Parisi, and you can't tell me there was a lot different. Or him and Marcus Smith, you can't tell me there was a lot different. Yet two a yellow card, and his is not even a penalty. Inconsistent rules, deliberate knockdown. Just make it clearer. If they're going for the intercept, play on. If it's stopping a try-scoring opportunity and it looks deliberate enough, it's deliberate. Thank you. Let's move on. Four scrum penalties. A massive one. Uh, and Angus Gardner, I actually think, reffed yes. it really well on... The weekend's New Zealand versus South Africa. We didn't have a single scrum reset. He just said, if it's going down, I'm penalising someone, which is fine. I, I'd rather that than 100 scrum resets. The issue is sometimes some of those penalties were called when the ball was playable. Now, I understand that you've got to kind of get the idea that if there's a dominant scrum, they deserve a scrum penalty. They deserve it. If they're dominant, they deserve it. It's part of the game. I like seeing a dominant scrum get a penalty. What I don't like seeing is a scrum that's both teams have really collapsed and the ball's at the back and we could have just played on. And we could have played on. Add to my 30 minutes of enjoyment. Add to it, please. Five, and this one's going to be a little bit just controversial because I've got kind of an asterisk next to it, is the water breaks at the moment. I don't know if you've seen them, but they've introduced it now as water breaks during the game. Now, I've got no problem with this because it's a health initiative from World Rugby. The game's in play for 30 fucking minutes and we're having a, a, a water break, tw two in each half. So that's four water breaks and a half time. So now we've got five breaks during a game of 30 minutes where the ball's in play. Like, if if we get that play and that ball up in, in play up to 50 minutes, even give me 40 to, 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 to 45 minutes, sure, take as many water breaks as you need. But 
why the ball's in play for 30 minutes, we don't need these water breaks. I'm sorry, it, it takes away from the game. I honestly think that game versus South Africa lasted forever and the amount of breaks there were, I was getting pissed off. As, as a purist, as a 1am waker-upper, I was getting pissed off. So top five things, killing rugby, I'll run for it quickly. Box kicks, advantages, inconsistent rules, specifically around the knockdown, scrum penalties, and water breaks. Thoughts, Mr. Husey? Uh, yeah, look, not a whole lot there to disagree with, particularly on the scrum penalty side. I think that's been one of the main things that has made rugby not as enjoyable to watch for me. Is It definitely feels like over the last 10, 12 years, it's been an increase in the referee's uh, hand in the scrum kind of thing, whether it's resetting a scrum or awarding penalties, resetting everything. It just takes fucking ages. Uh, there was even a case in the Australia versus Argentina game where the ref penalised the Australian scrum. When the Australians had won the scrum, um, but he said the ball was out, but he blocked Nick White from being able to get the ball, and because Nick White couldn't get to the ball, he penalised Australia. And it's like, I, I think overall, what a lot of this comes down to is a lack of common sense. It comes to the interpretation of the rules being rigid, right? It comes to, uh, and look, I studied law, so one of the things you, you're taught when you're looking at laws is not only to look at what the letter of the law is, but to look at what the intention behind the law is as well. And does the interpretation of the law lead to, uh, does your interpretation of the law lead to the intended outcome? Um, now, with a deliberate knockdown one, you can see exactly where that's coming from. The intention is to stop players just swiping their hands and swiping a ball down and killing a ball right? That makes total sense, right? But when you can see a player reaching out and extending their hand, trying to intercept a ball, are you really, are you really, is that interpretation really leading to what the intention of that law was created for? No. It's the same with, with scrum penalties as well, um, and, and many of the things that you, you've talked about there as well. So I, I think for me, the thing that's killing rugby, and what I would put top of any list, is uh, rigidity is the rigidity in the, what the referees are allowed and not allowed to call. And I think there needs to be uh, reviews of that and to look at not only what the letter of the law states, but also what the interpret what the uh, purpose of those laws were and how they should be interpreted. And I think that needs to be something that is publicly done and, and, and announced uh, every year, is that there is a, you know, a rugby laws um, uh, committee meeting where the heads of the refereeing associations get together, discuss the laws and the interpretations of them and the results from that. The, the NFL does something like that uh, every year. Uh, the NRL does sort of something similar where they just sort of bring in new rules and stuff like that. But I don't think rugby does that enough. Uh, and I think some more common sense being brought into the picture there is what's needed for rugby um, to, to not die a death of a thousand cuts. <laughs> I, I sometimes forget that I'm talking to a lawyer But the way you just said You know yeah. the intention of the rules and this And I was like that God we need you on some some board somewhere To telling them how to do it Because fuck <laughs> me that is the best way To 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 explain that Especially that deliberate knockdown rule Was that way yeah. there If you ever wanted to explain if it just, to one of your friends <laughs> If 
Just in, in general, if people just listened to me more, the world would be a better place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lordy. Um, yeah, we'll finish off today. Uh, what we're kind of doing uh, now, we're going to go over the headlines as we just did, a couple of segments, and then finish off with kind of a key point. And I think uh, a key topic to speak on on the sporting world this week is uh, around Michael Hooper and what he's done, I guess, for himself, for the sport, for I guess the the world of sport and his decisions he's made and and the battle with with the mental health um, slash kind of safety battle there. Now we can both admit it's a pretty damn brave thing as an Australian captain to to even admit that you're a struggling and, and b not able to perform at the level you know a you expect and then b you are holding everyone else accountable to. And I think that's that's the big thing here is that he's done this in obviously such a way where even going to Argentina must have been so hard because there's no doubt he would have been feeling this pre-going to Argentina. Um, and I think what Australian rugby's done, what the Australian team and the Wallabies and everyone in that circle has done has been fantastic. And like you said, it's been a great response. And it opens up a couple of conversations around mental health and the mental battle with elite athletes because you've got to think, and everyone goes, oh, I wish I had their job. I wish this, I wish that. I mean, I work at a, a nine-to-five uh, in an office where there's a hell of a lot of safety. I mean, I could get laid off at any point, but again, it's I'm not doing any damage to my head. I'm not doing any damage to my body. I sit in an office. Uh, I'm relatively healthy with what I do outside of it, so I keep myself healthy. And I go to put myself in their situation just seems now to me mental when, you know, a salary that I get is, is, is more than enough. I get four weeks annual leave, you know, like they're putting their body on the line and stuff like this. And and it and it's expected that they have to be on all the time. You know, there's not a moment like their, their nutrition has to be there. They need to be constantly lifting weights mm-hmm. or, you know, doing training. So it kind of got me into thinking, let's talk about this mental battle. And there's a couple of examples that have come out recently. And, and I think Chanel Harris-David is another very good example from New Zealand Warriors who you know, stepping away to, to follow his love of travel and, and writing. And that, that's a very brave thing as well. And we had a couple other um, examples. Paddy Pimbleton and the UFC, you know, won a fight and, and straight away started talking about mental health after he got a message that his mate had, had killed himself. Uh, and then I was just looking into the numbers and starting to get in the numbers. Uh, I just, Commonwealth Games are on at the moment. I know there had been a story and a, a pretty big one in New Zealand around New Zealand cycling and um, a female athlete there, I don't want to name names or anything, but she committed suicide. And I, I came across a, a, an article on how 173 Olympians across the, the span, which, you know, is a lot, have committed suicide. Now, these are obviously the elite of the elite. You go to the Olympics, you have to be elite. It's it's just a mental, I guess, craziness to, to kind of even start to think about, like, how far these guys are pushing themselves, how hard they're pushing themselves, and what it kind of gets into. I'd like to hear kind of your opinion. I know you spoke briefly on on hoops and stuff, but a bit more on that because it has been quite a out of nowhere, but a, a, as we've said, a brave moment in, in the sporting world. Yeah, I think um, the examples you bring up are really good as well. We, we saw another example from your Atlanta Falcons, Calvin Ridley. Um, of course, he was suspended the the next week after he announced that. So some people have not sort of discounted it, but he did take, he did say he was probably, he was sitting out for a little while because he just, he, the headspace wasn't right for that. Um, and I, I really resonated with what you said about, you know, 
working in an office and it's it's a relatively healthy place compared to you know working as a professional athlete i'm the same way um but even that has its has its stresses and and I, I will say although i studied law i do not work as a lawyer so i don't work in a law firm which i know is a very high stress place from friends i have that do work in law firms and those kinds of places there's a terrible mental health toll there as well so you've got to imagine that looking at a law firm you can have it as comparable to uh, a professional athlete in that it's usually like a results and a goals driven business you have to hit certain goals you have to achieve certain results um, to advance or to you know continue to be picked on the team in the case of of athletes and things like that right so the difference though is that athletes are not they not only have that in their mind they're also putting their bodies through the physical toll like we said you know not only are they uh, having to play brutal games of rugby against other top tier opponents, but they're also physically having to keep their bodies at a level of fitness that most humans uh, will never achieve. Uh, they've also got training sessions that can be particularly brutal. I mean, we've seen in the last couple of weeks a number of Aussies lost in um, in their just in training, right? and that's thrown up questions about how intensely they are doing the training and. Um, Another case I want to bring up um, is is the recent one of the Eddie Betts situation with the Adelaide Crows, where the training sessions they put them through there because at the end of the day, like I said, it's a results-driven business, right? You need to be achieving. And if you're not winning a premiership, you're not winning a rugby championship, and you're not winning the World Cup and things like that, you're not good enough. And especially with the Aussies, you're not winning Bledisloe's, which we haven't for a long while. There's always a weight of expectation on, on you to try and uh, recapture that. Now, uh, you, you take that and crank it up another notch in the case of Michael Hooper, right? As I sort of spoke about earlier, most caps as a captain, right? Youngest captain ever for the Wallabies, soon to be the most capped player if he continues on his thing. He has had these expectations on him from the moment he stepped out uh, in the green and gold, and he has lived up to every single one of them, right? He has been everything that he was promised to be and more. Sure, Wallabies haven't won a World Cup, haven't won a Bledisloe, but you can never say that that's because of him, right? I would say almost that it's in spite of him, in spite of his heroic efforts that he's put every single time on the rugby field, the Wallabies have somehow come up with a way to lose. Now, uh, so not only do you have the mental toll, you've got the physical toll of, you know, putting your body in harm's way. Uh, you've got trainers that are taking it out on you because you're not good enough. You haven't achieved the results you want. And, uh, with the whole Eddie Betts situation, he and the other Adelaide Crows teammates have come out with the psychological torture, quite frankly, they were put under there where incidents from their past and upbringing were used um, to abuse them. They were tied up and beaten. Like, it legitimately sounded like a prison torture camp and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going on in the Wallabies training camp, but there has been it has been said that it's been a particularly brutal um, training camp to because the opinion has been that they haven't been up to par physically. So... You're battling from all sides of things, right? And it's it's sort of amazing that not more people have, have cracked before. And I think it's been really good that um, the the message has been put out there that it is okay to take a break. It is okay to, to admit that um, you are mentally unwell as, as well as being physically unwell, right? No one's blaming um, Quay Cooper for rupturing his Achilles, right? No one is saying, oh... He's too soft. He shouldn't be out there. He obviously hasn't done enough to take care of himself that his Achilles is ruptured, right? No one's saying that. And 
that's what I really found encouraging was no one saying that about Hooper. No one saying, oh, well, you know, he's too soft. He shouldn't be out there. He shouldn't be captaining the Wallabies if he's doing that. Oh, poor him. He must be so hard to be a professional athlete. As I said, I saw one comment that said that out of hundreds and thousands. So I, I am really encouraged by that. But um, obviously there's a lot more, uh, uh, more of a way to go because the fact that players are pulling out like this shows that there is a problem. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've got some numbers and some data here. I went through and, and read some articles because I know it's a, it's a fascinating, it's always said in my head and it was, it was ages ago. It was probably when I was well, fuck, six, seven years ago and, and I was 21. Yep. 21. And I remember there was this young, I can't remember the name. Um, and I probably don't want to mention anyway, but, uh, he young NRL kid who had just, you know, left school was kind of meant to be the next big thing, like one of those situations that and had just killed himself. And it's that situation where you've got to think about it. You've just come out of a school where you are the big thing. You're the biggest dog. Like I played, you know, top at, at schools and, and, and where where you've got guys who are at that level or just about at that level, you know, they're destined to be the next big thing. They're gonna be great type thing like that. You've got all that pressure. So you come out of school and you go to a club, let's say in the NRL, let's do it use the NRL as just an example. So you come out of school, you get signed to say the Roosters again, no, no, just in general, just the Roosters, uh, and you're now one of the many big dogs because the Roosters haven't just signed you from the school, they've signed every big dog from around this school and now you're all big dogs. So now you're actually just a, a little pup because you're actually an under-20s, there's, you know, Jared Rari, Hargreaves ripping it up in top grade, you're, you're nothing just about. Now let's chuck in, you know, You've got had a girlfriend the whole time through school. You've been dating this girl for six years. Now you've broken up. You're a 19 year old kid, just come out of school, gone from being a top dog to now, you know, a, a little pup. That isn't that is never easy. That is never easy. Now, for so long, it's probably been like you just said, oh, just too soft. You're lucky to even be here. You're lucky to be in that Roosters under 20 situation. You're lucky to be doing this. You're lucky that you're there. You're lucky you got those skills. You're lucky that, and then. Obviously, sometimes it gets to them and it's too late. So I, I, I thought, I have to, there's, there's obviously research out there being done for this. So I went through and I found some articles. So researchers at Drexel and Keene Universities uh, found nearly 25% of collegiate athletes had reported clinically relevant levels of depressive symptoms. So that's one in four elite level athletes from collegiate um, had depressive uh, symptoms. That, that was one of the many I found as well, and this is another example, and let's chuck in for that example we were just discussing, this guy, this Roosters guy, big dog, and then he goes and does an ACL, and so now all of a sudden he can't play league, he's not a big dog, he's got no one, no support system there for him, it just, you can see how this, these mental battles happen, and so of college students that have suffered from injuries, 51% ended up developing depression, so of half from college students uh, who had injuries ended up with depression, uh, and and then another study as well. I believe that was the Australian one. Have I got the Australian? No, uh, the Australian one down is down at the bottom, which I thought was interesting. Rates and correlates of mental health symptoms in currently competing elite athletes from the Australian National High Performance Sports System. That was the uh, article I read, and the survey found that athletes were significantly more likely to report high to very high psychological distress compared to general community norms. So seventeen point one five percent. So you know, one in five, one in six, versus 9.5% in general population. So again, the, the difference we're seeing from the elite and, and what's expected of them to 
that just the general population is, is showing in studies, and these were all done 2018, 2020, 2019, and what it, it made me think, and it goes, this is where the opportunity, and I, I did some more reading, and in 2018, 27 out of 30 MLB teams, Major League Baseball teams, had a mental skills coach um, or someone who had studied psychology or, or, or gone down that path. So I just it just shows to you, you know, like the mental side of elite performance or elite athletes is becoming such a high part of the game, is such an important part of the game. You, you imagine, imagine a situation where Michael Hooper, God forbid, had, had you know, taken his own life because of the issues and you sit there and go did we give him enough support and that's a question you just never want to be asking like that's 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 the yeah. end question you know so I feel like there's there's an opportunity here there's going to be more and more and this is great what you know Hooper's done because there's going to be situations there'll be guys in shoot shields who are struggling at the moment and seeing a guy like Michael Hooper be able to go oh he's battling as well I can do it and you know we're, we're talking about athletes we're talking about this general they do all this elite stuff, and then especially someone in the Hoopers, they've got a family to go home to, you know? They're, they've got a family that they've still got to look after, they've still got to pay the bills for, you know? It's just, it's mind-blowing, and, and as, as terrible as it sounds, it's, it's it's good that this has happened. It's like, you know, they're talking, oh, there needs to be a gay, you know, rugby or rugby league player, you know, come out and stuff for, for the benefit of the game, that there's one, you know, who's currently active and stuff. It doesn't need to happen, but what, what happens when someone does do that is it, pushes the level of support yeah. for everyone else who's there to be able to do it. So, yeah, it was just, it was interesting. I don't know if, you know, those numbers, you know, correlate to anything or anything like that, but I just thought the position we're in and the, and the ability we, you know, we're lucky enough to speak on this and, and, and I've played with some high-level guys. It's just fascinating to see how much of that mental battle is going on. Yeah, I mean, even from us having played sport um, casually, there's there's pressure on you there to, to show up for your team, um, even when you're injured. I know I've certainly come back from injury too quickly. I know someone else on this podcast has as well <laughs> and <laughs> continues to do so because, you know, you don't want to let your 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 friends down and things like that. And it is one of those things where physical injury is still seen as – physical health is still seen as distinct from mental health, right, uh, where, you know, if you've got – like I had broken ribs last year and I couldn't play for a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, everyone was like, okay, that's, that's, you know, that is what it is. Take your time, get healthy. But still it was like, you know, when are you back? When can you, you play again? Kind of things like that. Like there wasn't, it wasn't the, um, I'm going to phrase into two things here, into active um, pressure and passive pressure, right? So there wasn't active pressure of like, you need to get back on the rugby field. You need to um, help everyone, help everyone out. Um, you're letting everyone down. There wasn't that. But there's passive pressure where it's like, oh, when do you think you'll be able to get back? Uh, you know, we, we really need you. Um, you know, just t- take your time. But, you know, when do you think you'll be back? It's that sort of, it's almost like uh, it, they're not saying it, but it, you can still feel it kind of thing. And there's, there was, I don't think there was any intention of trying to, to guilt anyone or anything like that. You know, we, we speak from a player's perspective, but also from a club perspective and an organization perspective. They do need to know these things. They need to make those plans. They need to know when their players are available, when they'll be back. And at, at a low club level, you know, there's not medical staff who can tell them that. It's up to the players to, to manage their injuries and, and things like that. Um, but imagine if you'd said, uh, or if I'd said, um, you know, I, I can't play these next couple of weeks. I'm just really struggling mentally, right? 
And I don't think necessarily the club or organisation or anyone would react badly to that, but it's, there is certainly a fear there. There's more of a fear there that by saying that, that someone will react badly to it uh, because there are still people out there who are insisting that it's it's nonsense and there is more of a stigmatism around it than, than say, physical injury. Um, and so there might not be any active pressure on players to not say anything about mental health like oh if you're if you're struggling mentally you're weak you're soft you shouldn't be in here but i think there's that passive pressure of like sort of it's it's almost within players own minds but they they don't want to come out and say like oh i'm i'm struggling because of the fear that someone might react negatively or their own fears that they might be letting their teammates down they might be letting the club down uh in hooper's case they might be letting the the wallabies of the country down and, and things like that as well it's that passive pressure of um you know, like to Hooper, like you're the captain. You've been the captain for so many years from such a young age. You've got all these captains and everything like that. You're such a great player, Hooper. All the boys follow you. You're a leader by example on and off the field. You're destined for, for greatness. The World Cup next year is going to be great with you at the helm and things like that. This year for the Rugby Championship is our year with you at the helm and things like that. Now, no one's there saying like, oh, if you're struggling, you're soft, you're weak. But it's all there of like, you're needed. We need you here. Like you are so good, and you just have that feeling of I don't want to let anyone down by not being there for my team, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that also is what needs to be addressed: is uh, the weight of expectations and all the different pressures that come onto players for having to perform, not only in negative ways but also in positive ways. Right? Building players up to to idols, to heroes, and that's what you know is the popular thing. Like little kids see sports players as heroes and things like that, as athletes as heroes, right? Building them up and putting people on those podiums. The higher it's it's almost like um, think of like climbing a mountain, right? The higher towards the peak you get, the less oxygen there is is to breathe, right? And I think that's the case with athletes. The higher of peaks that they're pushed to, the more that they're bound in, the more that they're restricted by uh, the expectations that are placed on them uh, because they feel like they have to live up to that level. They have to be what everyone thinks they are. Uh, and, you know, I, I think you phrased it well, so, someone coming out and being the figurehead for it, I can't really imagine anyone more perfect to, to come out and do this than Mike Hooper, a universally respected figure. Uh, and you can never say he's never given it, it all. Right, and again, that's that's putting an expectation on him uh, as well. So even within that, I, I've contributed to, to to the issue. I don't know that there's an there's an easy solution, or if there is a solution for it. But uh, I'm glad at least that it's showing players that uh, you don't have to always be the idealized version of what everyone thinks you are. You can just be who you are. Hundred percent. And are we part of the problem because we named him our Sansa X V captain? Is that do you reckon he saw that and was like, you know what, boys, this is just too yeah. much. I'm sorry, lads. <laughs> yeah, I think we, I think we did. I think we did. The the fact, I think, yeah, well, yeah, I don't, I, 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 I don't doubt it. In fact, I, the Argentina game to him was secondary. He was get. You know, I mean, we, you, we said it. He was in Argentina. He was there, training, ready to go. As soon as that that dropped on social media, that's when he's out. He's like, I can't. He was I, like, I, I just can't. 
It's just another thing on top of there. He's just like, I'm already dealing with the Wallabies. I've got the World Cup coming up. I'm back at the Waratahs as well. And now I'm going to have to captain a team full of um, Saffirs and Kiwis. Like, I just can't do it. It's just can't too do much. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, that was a straw that made the camel's back. But, yeah, I like the way you, the way you put it. Yeah. The, the peak, you start getting to that peak, you know, the media starts hyping you up more. The media expects this, that. And, you know, a, a similar, like, you know, Latrell, I always feel like gets wrongly yeah. treated in, in parts because he's getting closer and closer to that peak of just just unattainable um, ability and everything like that and what comes along yeah. with it. So, I mean, well, yeah, it's 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 one of those conversations I feel like we're going to have for years. I like like the compare comparison to the physical battle. You know, it's always physicals come a long way. You like you see with Quade Cooper, like back in the day, you could have had a broken arm and they'd call you soft as you come off now. You've got a broken arm; it's you coming off, or you know, a, a good a good example is head knocks. How far that's come, yeah, I feel like we're only going to come further and further with the mental battle. And I think uh, Michael Hooper has definitely paved the way for that. Anything 100%. else? Any other 100%. headlines you've got, Husey, for us? Uh, look, NFL preseason starts up next week, so uh, we will be having probably some more NFL content. Uh, coming your way on, on the podcast, especially especially once we hit the regular season, because that'll sort of be the tail end of the NRL and everything like that. So um, the hyperbolic headlines might continue, but with an NFL <laughs> uh, twist, twist on them as well, once the NRL season is done and things like that. So uh, your favourite segment and favourite content won't be going anywhere. Uh, but yeah, for now, nothing really for me to add. Excellent. All righty then. Thank you for joining us yet again, uh, family. We will speak to you again next week. Uh, same time, same place. See you there. See ya. Peace.